welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey there, just me. You're about to listen to another installment of our summer series, which is going to record the entire executive summary report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Obviously, there is a content warning while engaging with this material, and we ask that you please take care. You're going to hear some different voices. Some are new, and some you've heard before. And we give a heartfelt thank you so much to everyone who rallied to record this project with us. Be sure to check the description for relevant links and page numbers, so you can actively reference the report while you're listening if need be. And without any further ado... We present to you the Executive Summary Report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The Challenge of Reconciliation Setting the Context Canada has a long history of colonialism in relation to Aboriginal peoples. That history and its policies of cultural genocide and assimilation have left deep scars on the lives of many Aboriginal people, on Aboriginal communities as well as on Canadian society and have deeply damaged the relationship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples. It took a long time for that damage to have been done and for the relationship we see to have been created, and it will take us a long time to fix it. But the process has already begun. An important process of healing and reconciling that relationship began in the 1980s with church apologies for their treatment of Aboriginal peoples and disrespect of their cultures. It continued with the findings of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, along with court recognition of the validity of the survivor's stories. It accumulated in the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement and the Prime Minister of Canada's Apology in Parliament in June 2008, along with the apologies of all other parliamentary leaders. That process of healing and reconciliation must continue. The ultimate objective must be to transform our country and restore mutual respect between peoples and nations. Reconciliation is in the best interests of all of Canada. It is necessary not only to resolve the ongoing conflicts between Aboriginal peoples and institutions of country, but also in order for Canada to remove a stain from its past and be able to maintain its claim to be a leader in the protection of human rights among the nations of the world. Canada's historical development, as well as the view held strongly by some that the history of that development is accurate and beneficent, raises significant barriers to reconciliation in the 21st century. No Canadian can take pride in this country's treatment of Aboriginal peoples, and for that reason, all Canadians have a critical role to play in advancing reconciliation in ways that honour and revitalise the nation-to-nation treaty relationship. At the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada's, TRC, Traditional Knowledge Keepers Forum held in June 2011, Chief Ian Campbell said, quote, Our history is your history as Canada. Until Canada accepts that, this society will never flourish to its full potential. End quote. The history and destructive legacy of the residential school system is a powerful reminder that Canada disregarded its own historical roots. Canada's determination to assimilate Aboriginal peoples, in spite of the early relationship established at first contact and formalized and maintained in treaties, attests to that fact. As Jerry St. Germain, Métis, then a Canadian senator, said, quote, There can be no doubt that the founders of Canada somehow lost their moral compass in their relations with the people who occupied and possessed the land. While we cannot change history, 
We can learn from it, and we can use it to shape our common future. This effort is crucial in realizing the vision of creating a compassionate and humanitarian society, the society that our ancestors, the Aboriginal, the French, and the English peoples, envisioned so many years ago, our home, Canada, end quote. Aboriginal peoples have always remembered the original relationship that they had with early Canadians. That relationship of mutual support, respect, and assistance was confirmed by the Royal Proclamation of 1763 and the treaties with the Crown that were negotiated in good faith by their leaders. That memory, confirmed by historical analysis and passed down through Indigenous oral histories, has sustained Aboriginal peoples in their long political struggle to live with dignity as self-determining peoples with their own cultures, laws, and connections to the land. The destructive impacts of residential schools, the Indian Act, and the Crown's failure to keep its treaty promises have damaged the relationship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples. The most significant damage is to the trust that has been broken between the Crown and Aboriginal peoples. That broken trust must be repaired. The vision that led to the breach in trust must be replaced with a new vision for Canada, one that fully embraces Aboriginal people's right to self-determination within, and in a partnership with, a viable Canadian sovereignty. If Canadians fail to find that vision, then Canada will not resolve long-standing conflicts between the Crown and Aboriginal people over treaty and Aboriginal rights, lands, and resources, or the education, health, and well-being of Aboriginal peoples. Reconciliation will not be achieved, and neither will the hope for reconciliation be sustainable over time. It would not be inconceivable that the unrest we see today among young Aboriginal people could grow to become a challenge to the country's own sense of well-being and its very security. Reconciliation must become a way of life. It will take many years to repair damaged trust and relationships in Aboriginal communities and between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples. Reconciliation not only requires apologies, reparations, the relearning of Canada's national history, and public commemoration, but also needs real social, political, and economic change. Ongoing public education and dialogue are essential to reconciliation. Governments, churches, educational institutions, and Canadians from all walks of life are responsible for taking action on reconciliation in concrete ways, working collaboratively with Aboriginal peoples. Reconciliation begins with each and every one of us. The Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal youth of our country have told the Commission that they want to know the truth about the history and legacy of residential schools. They want to understand their responsibilities as parties to the same treaties, in other words, as treaty people. They want to learn about the rich contributions that Aboriginal peoples have made to this country. They understand that reconciliation involves a conversation not only about residential schools, but also about all other aspects of the relationship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples. As commissioners, we believe that reconciliation is about respect. That includes both self-respect for Aboriginal people and mutual respect among all Canadians. All young people need to know who they are and from where they come. Aboriginal children and youth, searching for their own identities and places of belonging, need to know and take pride in their Indigenous roots. They need to know the answers to some very basic questions. Who are my people? What is our history? How are we unique? Where do I belong? Where is my homeland? What is my language, and how does it connect me to my nation's spiritual beliefs, cultural practices, and ways of being in the world? They also need to know why things are the way they are today. 
that requires an understanding of the history of colonization, including the residential school system and how it has affected their families, communities, their people, and themselves. Of equal importance, non-Aboriginal children and youth need to comprehend how their own identities and family histories have been shaped by a version of Canadian history that has marginalized Aboriginal people's history and experience. They need to know how notions of European superiority and Aboriginal inferiority have tainted mainstream society's ideas about them and attitudes towards Aboriginal peoples in ways that have been profoundly disrespectful and damaging. They, too, need to understand Canada's history as a settler society and how assimilation policies have affected Aboriginal peoples. This knowledge and understanding will lay the groundwork for establishing mutually respectful relationships. The Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples In the summer of 1990, at Oka, Quebec, the Mohawks of Kanasatake, the government of Quebec, the Quebec Provincial Police, and the Canadian military became embroiled in a violent confrontation over the town's plan to develop a golf course on Mohawk burial grounds located in a forested area known as the Pines. The Mohawks claim to that land and the demands for the recognition of their traditional territory had gone unheeded for years by the federal government. The resulting confrontation, according to historian J.R. Miller, was, quote, proof of Canada's failed Indian land claims policy, end quote. What had begun as a peaceful act of resistance by Mohawk people defending their lands took a violent turn. The Oka crisis, as it became widely known in the media, led to a 78-day standoff and involved armed resistance led by militarily trained Mohawk warriors. It was an event that shook Canada's complacency about Aboriginal demands to the core. Shortly after an end to the siege had been negotiated, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney wrote, quote, The summer's events must not be allowed to overshadow the commitment that my government has made to addressing the concerns of Aboriginal people. These grievances raise issues that deeply affect all Canadians and therefore must be resolved by all Canadians working together. The government's agenda responds to the demands of Aboriginal peoples and has four parts. Resolving land claims, improving the economic and social conditions on reserves, defining a new relationship between Aboriginal peoples and governments, and addressing the concerns of Canada's Aboriginal peoples in contemporary Canadian life. Consultation with Aboriginal peoples and respect for the fiduciary responsibilities of the Crown are integral parts of the process. The federal government is determined to create a new relationship among Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians based on dignity, trust, and respect. The Government of Canada subsequently created a Royal Commission to look into the state of affairs of Aboriginal peoples in Canada. The Royal Commission provided a glimpse into just how bad things had become. In 1996, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, RCAP, put forward a bold and comprehensive vision of reconciliation. The RCAP report observed that if Canada was to thrive in the future, the relationship between Aboriginal peoples and the Crown must be transformed. The report concluded that the policy of assimilation was a complete failure and that Canada must look to the historical treaty relationship to establish a new relationship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples based on the principles of mutual recognition, mutual respect, sharing, and mutual responsibility. The Royal Commission emphasized that Aboriginal peoples' right to self-determination is essential to a robust upholding of Canada's constitutional obligations to Aboriginal peoples and compliance with international human rights law. In other words, the RCAP report saw reconciliation as placing a heavy onus on the Government of Canada 
to change its conduct and to see the validity of the Aboriginal perspective of how the relationship should be in the future. In the years following the release of the RCAP report, developing a national vision of reconciliation has proved to be challenging. In principle, Aboriginal peoples, governments, and the courts agree that reconciliation is needed. In practice, it has been difficult to create the conditions for reconciliation to flourish. The Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement, including the creation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, was an attempt to resolve the thousands of lawsuits brought against the government for cases of historical abuse. Its implementation has also been challenging. Canada and the churches have made apologies to survivors, their families, and communities. Yet, Canadian government actions continue to be unilateral and divisive, and Aboriginal peoples continue to resist such actions. Negotiations on treaties and land claim agreements continue with a view to reconciling Aboriginal title and rights with Crown sovereignty. However, many cases remain unresolved. The courts have produced a body of law on reconciliation in relation to Aboriginal rights, which has established some parameters for discussion and negotiations, but there remains no ongoing national process or entity to guide this discussion. What is clear to this Commission is that Aboriginal peoples and the Crown have very different and conflicting views on what reconciliation is and how it is best achieved. The Government of Canada appears to believe that reconciliation entails Aboriginal peoples' acceptance of the reality and validity of Crown sovereignty and parliamentary supremacy, in order to allow the government to get on with business. Aboriginal people, on the other hand, see reconciliation as an opportunity to affirm their own sovereignty and return to the partnership ambitions they held after Confederation. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People as a Framework for Reconciliation Aboriginal peoples in Canada were not alone in the world when it came to being treated harshly by colonial authorities and settler governments. Historical abuses of Aboriginal peoples and the taking of Indigenous lands and resources throughout the world have been the subject of United Nations attention for many years. On September 13, 2007, after almost 25 years of debate and study, the United Nations adopted the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. As a declaration, it calls upon member states to adopt and maintain its provisions as a set of minimum standards for the survival, dignity, and well-being of the Indigenous peoples of the world. The Commission concurs with the view of S. James Anaya, UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, who observed, quote, It is perhaps best to understand the Declaration and the right of self-determination it affirms as instruments of reconciliation. Properly understood, self-determination is an animating force for efforts towards reconciliation, or, perhaps more accurately, conciliation, with peoples that have suffered oppression at the hands of others. Self-determination requires confronting and revising the legacies of empire, discrimination, and cultural suffocation. It does not do so to condone vengefulness or spite for past evils, or to foster divisiveness, but rather to build a social and political order based on relations of mutual understanding and respect. This is what the right of self-determination of Indigenous peoples, and of all other peoples, is about. End quote. Canada, as a member of the United Nations, initially refused to adopt the Declaration. It joined the United States, Australia, and New Zealand in doing so. It is not a coincidence that all of these nations have a common history as part of the British Empire. The historical treatment of Aboriginal peoples in these other countries has strong parallels to what happened to Aboriginal peoples in Canada. Specifically, 
Canada objected to the Declaration's, quote, provisions dealing with lands, territories, and resources, free, prior, and informed consent when used as a veto, self-government without recognition of the importance of negotiations, intellectual property, military issues, and the need to achieve an appropriate balance between the rights and obligations of Indigenous peoples, member states, and third parties, end quote. Although these four countries eventually endorsed the Declaration, they have all done so conditionally. In 2010, Canada endorsed the Declaration as a non-legally binding aspirational document. Despite this endorsement, we believe that the provisions and the vision of the Declaration do not currently enjoy government acceptance. However, because Canada has accepted the Declaration, we hold the federal government to its word that it will genuinely aspire to achieve its provisions. In 2011, Canadian churches and social justice advocacy groups who had campaigned for Canada's adoption of the Declaration urged the federal government to implement it. However, Canada's interpretation of the Declaration remained unchanged. On September 22, 2014, at the World Conference on Indigenous Peoples, WCIP, in New York, the United Nations General Assembly adopted an action-oriented outcome document to guide the implementation of the Declaration. Member states from around the world committed, among other things, to the following. Quote, taking, in consultation and cooperation with Indigenous peoples, appropriate measures at the national level, including legislative, policy, and administrative measures, to achieve the ends of the Declaration and to promote awareness of it among all sectors of society, including members of legislatures, the judiciary, and the civil service. We commit ourselves to cooperating with Indigenous peoples through their own representative institutions to develop and implement national action plans, strategies, or other measures, where relevant, to achieve the ends of the Declaration, and also encourage the private sector, civil society, and academic institutions to take an active role in promoting and protecting the rights of Indigenous people, end quote. The outcome document represented an important step forward with regard to implementing the Declaration in practical terms. The development of national action plans, strategies, and other concrete measures will provide the necessary structural and institutional frameworks for ensuring that Indigenous peoples' right to self-determination is realized across the globe. Canada issued a formal statement at the WCIP objecting to certain paragraphs of the document related to the principle of obtaining the free, prior, and informed consent of Indigenous peoples when states are making decisions that will affect their rights or interests, including economic development on their lands. Canada said, quote, Free, prior, and informed consent, as it is considered in paragraphs 3 and 20 of the WCIP outcome document, could be interpreted as providing a veto to Aboriginal groups and in that regard, cannot be reconciled with Canadian law as it exists. Canada cannot support paragraph 4 in particular, given that Canadian law, recently reaffirmed in a Supreme Court of Canada decision, states the Crown may justify the infringement of an Aboriginal or treaty right if it meets a stringent test to reconcile Aboriginal rights with a broader public interest, end quote. In a public statement, Indigenous leaders and their supporters said that Canada's concerns were unfounded, noting that, quote, the notion that the Declaration could be interpreted as conferring an absolute and unilateral veto power has been repeatedly raised by Canada as a justification for its continued opposition to the Declaration. This claim, however, has no basis in either the UN Declaration or in the wider body of international law. Like standards of accommodation and consent set out by the Supreme Court of Canada, 
FPIC in international law is applied in proportion to the potential for harm to the rights of Indigenous peoples and to the strength of these rights. The word veto does not appear in the UN Declaration. Canada keeps insisting that Indigenous peoples don't have a say in development on their lands. This position is not consistent with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, decisions by its own courts, or the goal of reconciliation. End quote. Reflecting on the importance of the Declaration to First Nations, Inuit, and Metis peoples in Canada, Grand Chief Edward John, hereditary chief of the Talasdan Nation in northern British Columbia, explained quote, We have struggled for generations for recognition of our rights. We have fought for our survival, dignity, and well-being, and the struggle continues. Canada's denial of First Nations land rights falls well short of the minimum standards affirmed by the Declaration and demonstrates a clear failure by Canada to implement its human rights obligations. Prime Minister Harper's apology for Canada's role in the Indian residential schools acknowledged that the policy of assimilation was wrong and has no place in our country. Yet Canada's policy of denying Aboriginal title and rights is premised on the same attitude of assimilation. It is time for this attitude and the policies that flow from it to be cast aside. The Declaration calls for the development of new relationships based on recognition and respect for the inherent human rights of Indigenous peoples. The TRC considers reconciliation to be an ongoing process of establishing and maintaining respectful relationships at all levels of Canadian society. The Commission therefore believes that the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is the appropriate framework for reconciliation in 21st century Canada. Studying the Declaration, with a view to identifying its impacts on current government laws, policy, and behaviour, would enable Canada to develop a holistic vision of reconciliation that embraces all aspects of the relationship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians, and to set the standard for international achievement in its circle of hesitating nations. Aboriginal people's right to self-determination must be integrated into Canada's constitutional and legal framework and civic institutions in a manner consistent with the principles, norms, and standards of the Declaration. Aboriginal peoples in Canada have Aboriginal and Treaty rights. They have the right to access and revitalize their own laws and governance systems within their own communities and in their dealings with governments. They have a right to protect and revitalize their cultures, languages, and ways of life. They have the right to reparations for historical harms. In 2014, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that the Silkateen peoples have Aboriginal title to their lands in northern British Columbia. End quote. Ownership rights similar to those associated with fee simple, including the right to decide how the land will be used, the right of enjoyment and occupancy of the land, the right to possess the land, the right to the economic benefits of the land, and the right to proactively use and manage the land. End quote. The court said, quote, Governments and individuals proposing to use or exploit land, whether before or after a declaration of Aboriginal title, can avoid a change of infringement or failure to adequately consult by obtaining the consent of the interested Aboriginal group. End quote. In the face of growing conflicts over lands, resources, and economic development, the scope of reconciliation must extend beyond residential schools to encompass all aspects of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal relations and connections to the land. Therefore, in our view, it is essential that all levels of government endorse and implement the Declaration. The Commission urges the federal government to reverse its position and fully endorse the outcome document. We believe that the federal government must develop a national action plan to implement the Declaration. 
this would be consistent with the direction provided by the Supreme Court of Canada. More importantly, it would be consistent with the achievement of reconciliation. Calls to Action 43. We call upon federal, provincial, territorial, and municipal governments to fully adopt and implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as the framework for reconciliation. 44. We call upon the Government of Canada to develop a national action plan, strategies, and other concrete measures to achieve the goals of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Doctrine of Discovery Earlier in this report, we recalled how European states relied on the doctrine of discovery and the concept of terra nullius, lands belonging to no one, to justify empire building and the colonization of Aboriginal peoples and their lands in North America and across the globe. Far from being ancient history with no relevance for reconciliation today, the doctrine of discovery underlies the legal basis on which British Crown officials claimed sovereignty over Indigenous peoples and justified the extinguishment of their inherent rights to their territories, lands, and resources. Speaking at the Manitoba National Event in 2010, former day school student, political leader, and educator Saul Sanderson explained the importance of making the connection between the policies and practices of imperialism and colonization and the need for transformative change in Canadian society. Quote, what were the objectives of those empire policies? Assimilation, integration, civilization, Christianization, and liquidation. Who did those policies target? They targeted the destruction of our Indigenous families worldwide. Why? Because that was the foundation of our governing systems. They were the foundations of our institutions and our societies of our nations. Now those policies still form the basis of Canadian law today, not just in the Indian Act that outlawed our traditions, our customs, our practices, our values, our language, our culture, our forms of government, our jurisdiction. They say we have constitutionally protected rights in the form of inherent rights, Aboriginal rights, and treaty rights. We find ourselves in courts daily defending those rights against the colonial laws of the provinces and the federal government. Now we cannot allow that to continue, end quote. From 2010 to 2014, the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues undertook a number of studies and reports on the doctrine of discovery. During this time period, the settlement agreement churches also began to examine the Christian thinking that had justified taking Indigenous lands and removing children from their families and communities. Writing about the Roman Catholic foundations of Aboriginal land claims in Canada, historian Jennifer Reed explains why the doctrine of discovery remains relevant today. Quote, most non-Aboriginal Canadians are aware of the fact that Indigenous peoples commonly regard land rights as culturally and religiously significant. Fewer non-Natives, I suspect, would consider their own connection with property in the same light, and fewer still would regard the legal foundation of all land rights in Canada as conspicuously theological. In fact, however, it is. The relationship between law and the land in Canada can be traced to a set of 15th century theological assumptions that have found their way into Canadian law. The doctrine of discovery was the legal means by which Europeans claimed rights of sovereignty, property, and trade in regions they allegedly discovered during the Age of Expansion. These claims were made without consultation or engagement of any sort with the resident population in these territories, the people to whom, by any sensible account, the land actually belonged. The doctrine of discovery has been a critical component of historical relationships between Europeans, their descendants, and Indigenous peoples and it underlies their legal relationships to this day, having smoothly and relatively uncritically 
transitioned from Roman Catholic to international law, end quote. In April 2010, the Permanent Observer Mission of the Holy See, the UN representative from the Roman Catholic Vatican, issued a statement regarding the Doctrine of Discovery at the ninth session of the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. The statement noted that earlier papal bulls regarding territorial expansion and forced conversion of Indigenous peoples had subsequently been abrogated or annulled by the Roman Catholic Church. Quote, regarding the question of the Doctrine of Discovery and the role of the papal bull, Intercotera, the Holy See notes that Intercotera, as a source of international law, was first of all abrogated by the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494, and that circumstances have changed so much that to attribute any judicial value to such a document seems completely out of place. In addition, it was also abrogated by other papal bulls. For example, Sublimus Deus in 1537, which states, quote, Indians and all other people who may later be discovered by Christians are by no means to be deprived of their liberty or the possession of their property. Should the contrary happen, it shall be null and have no effect, end quote. This view was expanded upon and reinforced in Immensa Pastorum of Pope Benedict XIV of the 20th of December, 1741, and a number of other papal encyclicals, statements, and decrees. If any doubt remains, it is abrogated by Canon 6 of the Code of Canon Law of 1983, which abrogates in general all preceding penal and disciplinary laws. Therefore, for international law and for the Catholic Church law, the bull intercotera is a historical remnant with no juridical, moral, or doctrinal value. The fact that juridical systems may employ the doctrine of discovery as a juridical precedent is now therefore characteristic of the laws of those states and is independent of the fact that for the Church the document has had no value for centuries. The refutation of this document is therefore now under the competence of national authorities, legislators, lawyers, and legal historians. End quote. For many, that Catholic statement was inadequate. The doctrine's influence in Western law and its destructive consequences for Indigenous peoples have been well documented by scholars and other experts. In 2014, the North American representative to the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, Grand Chief Edward John, tabled the study on the impacts of the doctrine of discovery on Indigenous peoples, including mechanisms, processes, and instruments of redress. The study concluded, quote, with regard to land dispossessions, forced conversions of non-Christians, the deprivation of liberty, and the enslavement of Indigenous peoples, the Holy See reported that an abrogation process took place over the centuries to invalidate such nefarious actions. Such papal renunciations do not go far enough. There is a pressing need to decolonize from the debilitating impact and ongoing legacy of denial by states of Indigenous peoples' inherent sovereignty, laws, and title to the lands, territories, and resources. At the same time, there is a growing movement among faith-based bodies to repudiate the doctrine of discovery. End quote. In 2010, the Anglican Church of Canada was the first of the settlement agreement churches in Canada to reject the doctrine of discovery and to review the Church's policies and programs with a view to exposing the historical reality and impact of the Doctrine of Discovery and eliminating its presence from its contemporary policies, program, and structures. In 2013, the Anglican Church established a Commission on Discovery, Reconciliation, and Justice, which had three goals. 
One, to examine the Anglican Church of Canada's policies and practices and revise them as necessary to be consistent with its repudiation of the doctrine of discovery. Two, to look into the question of what is reconciliation. And three, to review the Church's commitment to addressing long-standing injustices borne by Indigenous peoples in Canada. The Commission of Discovery will table a final report to the Anglican General Synod in 2016. In February 2012, the Executive Committee of the World Council of Churches, WCC, also repudiated the Doctrine of Discovery. The WCC represents over 500 million Christians in more than 110 countries and 345 member churches, including three of the Settlement Agreement churches. The WCC statement denounced the Doctrine of Discovery and urged governments to dismantle the legal structures and policies based on the Doctrine of Discovery and to ensure that they conform to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The statement expressed solidarity with Indigenous peoples and affirmed their rights of self-determination and self-governance. The WCC also asked its member churches to support Indigenous self-determination in spiritual matters and education of all members of their churches. The United Church of Canada responded to this call. At its meeting in March 2012, the executive of the General Council of the United Church, Quote, agreed unanimously to disown the doctrine of discovery, a historical concept which has been used to rationalize the enslavement and colonization of indigenous peoples around the world. End quote. At the 11th session of the UN Permanent Forum in May 2012, Kairos, an international church social justice advocacy organization, made a joint statement with the Assembly of First Nations, Chiefs of Ontario, Grand Council of the Cree, Amnesty International, and the Canadian Friends Service Committee, Quakers, on the Doctrine of Discovery. The statement said that, quote, while churches have begun to repudiate this racist doctrine, states around the world have not, end quote. It recommended that states, in conjunction with Indigenous peoples, undertake legal and policy reform to remove any remnants of doctrines of superiority, including discovery, as a basis for the assumed sovereignty over Indigenous peoples and their lands and resources. In his report to the UN Permanent Forum, Grand Chief Edward John focused on how Canadian courts have dealt with sovereignty issues. Quote, the highest court of Canada has recognized the need for reconciliation of pre-existing Aboriginal sovereignty with assumed Crown sovereignty. The Supreme Court has taken judicial notice of such matters as colonialism, displacement, and residential schools, which demonstrate how assumed sovereign powers were abused throughout history. The root cause of such abuse leads back to the doctrine of discovery and other related fictitious constructs, which must be therefore addressed, end quote. At the 13th session of the UN Permanent Forum in May 2014, Haudenosaunee faith keeper Oren Lyons spoke about the principles of good governance as they relate to the United Nations Declaration. He said, quote, We recognize the doctrine of discovery and its long-term effects on our peoples, led to the atrocities we faced in residential and boarding schools, both in Canada and the U.S. The doctrine of discovery has been invoked as a justification for the ongoing exploitation of our lands, territories, and resources, and directly violates Article 7, Paragraph 2 of the UNDRIP, end quote. The doctrine of discovery and the related concept of terra nullius underpin the requirement for Aboriginal peoples to prove their pre-existing occupation of the land in court cases, or to have their land and resource rights extinguished in contemporary treaty and land claim processes. Such a requirement does not conform to international law 
or contribute to reconciliation. Such concepts are a current manifestation of historical wrongs and should be formally repudiated by all levels of Canadian government. Our intention in so concluding is to highlight that there is an important distinction to be drawn between the doctrine of discovery and its related concepts and the several inherently unjust policies, laws, and principles to which they have given rise over the years. It would not be enough to simply repudiate the doctrine of discovery, for example, while still maintaining the requirement for Aboriginal people to prove the validity of their existence in territoriality. We would not suggest that the repudiation of the doctrine of discovery necessarily gives rise to the invalidation of Crown sovereignty. The Commission accepts that there are other means to establish the validity of Crown sovereignty without undermining the important principle established in the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which is that the sovereignty of the Crown requires that it recognize and deal with Aboriginal title in order to become perfected. It must not be forgotten that the terms of the Royal Proclamation were explained to and accepted by Indigenous leaders during the negotiation of the Treaty of Niagara in 1764. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering done by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music is done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com.